tuna sandwiches are delicious, if you make them right. I like mine with a little dill and a dop of brown mustard. Substitute egg salad for the tuna, just like mom used to make, and yeah, there's nothing like a good tuna sandwich. Except for maybe my newest case. If a chicken and a half laid an egg and a half in a day and a half, how many pancakes would it take to shingle a dog's roof? 34. Okay. It's a case of missing persons. I've been hired by an angry red-headed tooth chiropractor to identify the whereabouts of one Michael J. Tannehill, minus the cold and minus the J, a fellow faith detective. Or should I say, a fellow former faith detective. Still a fellow, still a detective. Kind of like Batman. If Batman were shaped more like the penguin after eating half of the inmates at Arkham Asylum. And if Batman had a major thing for Superman. <laughs> Which, let's face it, Batman probably does. John says now. But Mike was no longer a faith detective. His faith was now only a former faith. Former, because his church leaders had betrayed him in oh so many ways. Like the guy behind the ice cream counter who gives you as many scoops of ice cream as you want with every flavor you could possibly hope for and gives you extra whipped cream and a whole meaty handful of cherries and all of his nuts, but then licks the spoon and gives you a wink as he hands it to you, revealing his inner gayness, or at least his inner sympathy towards gayness. So you swat away the nuts and eat the ice cream with your fingers, praying with each bite to the good Lord in heaven above that none of those gay cooties get on you. But man... Ice cream. John Hammond says now. Because Mike started losing his faith in the Mormon church when he saw the church at the very highest levels begin to... Uh, how exactly did he put it at the end of today's episode? You begin to blend in the philosophies of man with the, the gospel. And over time these things mingled and dilute the fullness of the gospel. You just have to have faith in the prophets and apostles. We know that these are good men and that they're not going to let something like that happen to Christ Church. Right. That way. Only this thing that Mike said happened a few years before the Mormon Church started putting essays on LDS.org that fell into this very trap that Mike was setting for them way back when. John says, That's right. Mike Tannehill, former faith. Detective. Nothing for you. A lesser man might give up on a faithless, feckless slob, but I'm no lesser man. I'm Rank McBadden, Faith Detective. And nobody, nobody messes with Faith Detectives. So look out. I'm going full burrito on their ass. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and today is a throwback episode. This is actually the fourth episode that Infants on Thrones ever published. It was published in September 2012, and it's a very different style, very different approach from what Infants became. It took forever to make. There's probably six or seven different interviews that I did, and 
interspersed clips in them. I, you'll hear it. It features Brother Jake before he became a Brother Jake, before he became an infant, and his wife Erica. Uh, I've got uh, one of my uh, missionary uh, conversions. His name's Cabo, and I interviewed him for Mormon Expression when I started doing podcasts for Mormon Expression. There's some clips of that in here. Former roommate uh, from BYU. Got Randy and Matt and uh, Rock Waterman and another guy named Mike, but then we've got Mike Tannehill, and this is the week of Tannehill. And that this isn't full Tannehill, you know, there's only pieces of Tannehill in it, but it's especially interesting because of what he says at the end about the church being in apostasy or what the signs of the church going into apostasy might look like. Very interesting, <laughs> given what ended up happening with those LDS.org essays, and you'll hear more about that as uh, the week of Tannehill unfolds. But this is... Uh, uh, another episode leading up to the Seven Deadly Heresies Part 2, where Mike is an actual participant, and uh, hope you're enjoying this. I am. And if you like what we're doing, please support us on Patreon. It's important. Thank you. And now, a very Radio Lab attempt that, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll do more episodes like this, but it just took so, so long. Which is probably why Infants on Thrones fell into its own little... Apostasy. All right, go ahead. Say it. Infants on Thrones is the greatest podcast in the world. In the universe. Say in the oh, universe. In the universe. Okay. Read this part right here. You can find them on the web at www.infantsonthrones.com. Right, don't, don't forget the like. All right, go ahead. Oh, don't forget to like them on Facebook. To get special access and updates on what is coming next. It's actually access, but access works too. Okay, here, do this. Thanks for listening. Can I go to bed now? Okay. (laughs) This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are the core. Welcome to Infants on Thrones. I'm your host today, Glenn Ostland. On today's episode... City Creek Mall sounds exactly like something Joseph Smith would do in Nauvoo. The Book of Mormon is full of references and prophecies that it will indeed happen. Well, I'll I'll just... Yeah, just summarize it. That's the word, summarize. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth, and I declared unto you your understanding? That's not summarizing. That's reading. (laughs) I know reading when I hear it. At that point, it was like the uh, the warning bells and the red flags went up and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I was ready to go to battle. So those were fighting words back then. So let's get started. You know, the story of Mormonism is really the story of lost and found, the story of apostasy and restoration. It's a narrative pattern, a tale type embedded deep in the psyche of every Mormon, Because in my mind, at least, one of the most empowering and engaging aspects of Mormonism is that it puts you right at the center of God's plan. You have a work to do in this great restoration, a marvelous work and a wonder. And many are called, but few are chosen. It's the sort of thing that can really give you a sense of purpose in this life. The idea that you're going to do things that are, well, something incredible. Changed all of mankind. 
But in order to save all the lost souls of mankind, you first have to start with a bunch of lost souls. Every good narrative needs its conflict. Every solution needs a problem. Enter the apostasy. I sat down with a few church-going friends of mine the other day, and I asked them to explain this apostasy thing to me. Okay, well, I I thought we were taking turns or something. This is Jake Frost. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I don't know. First thing I think of was Christ. And this is his wife, Erica. Also a friend. I don't know. That's just the first image that came to my mind. There's yellow. <laughs> that associative word. Yeah. That's what I thought we were doing. Jake and Erica like to think outside the box about their LDS beliefs. I thought it would be interesting to bring them on and hear what they remember being taught about the apostasy. Basically, the apostasy was following the death of Jesus Christ. The apostles went out preaching the gospel and, and baptizing in, with the authority that Christ had given them and uh, giving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, but as they were rejected, executed, or exiled, or what have you, the church, the organization that they left behind, uh, fell apart because it didn't have that authentic priesthood leadership. Correlation did a good job because I probably would have said something very similar. That's basically what you have the, is the apostasy. You have Christian organizations that don't have the legitimate priesthood authority to administer the you know, ordinance, the saving ordinances. And the restoration is the restoration of those primarily, yeah, well, primarily of the priesthood. Like that's kind of the crux of it. And then also of the restoration of, you know, the fullness of the gospel through Joseph Smith. Baptism by immersion and baptisms for the dead. From what I learned from, from you know, serving my mission and everything was that it was set up in a very similar way to the church as it is now. Deacons and priests and basically, like, you could kind of have wards. You have, like, smaller branches of the main church. I think it says 70s. I don't know, but there's a lot of the same... Well, they also say that there's, like, pastors and evangelists and that type of thing. So that's why Paul is writing his letters to the different local organizations, because he represented the higher up the organizational ladder, I guess you would call it. We're going to hear more from Jake and Erica later on. But uh, to finish telling the story of the apostasy and the restoration, I turn to another friend of mine, Mike Tannehill. He's a little nuts, but he's got some good things to say. Well, Joseph Smith, um, as a prophet of the restoration, he... He brought back what's known as the fullness of the gospel. Like what? Uh, when, the, when the 12 apostles were killed and Rome kind of took over Christianity, it, right after Christ's death, there was a time where the apostles led things, but it, it became very uh, thinned out. And a lot of gospel truths and simple understandings of the gospel were lost. Things like the resurrection, uh, the purpose of... What do you mean the resurrection? Everybody knows about the resurrection. There's this whole big Easter holiday. Christ was resurrected, but one of the things Joseph Smith restored was um, the knowledge that we are all going to be resurrected and receive our physical bodies again. I see. The knowledge that God continues to speak, not only through prophets, but he can speak to all of us. The process of becoming Christ-like, that we lived a pre-mortal existence, the purpose of life, the knowledge that salvation is available for those that have died without knowledge of Christ. But the big three... You just knew there were going to be three, right? ...is uh, the restoration of the knowledge that God is, in fact, our Father in heaven. All right, let me pause this for a minute. Now, this is Mike's first main point. The first great truth lost during the great apostasy, but found through the even greater restoration. The truth that God is our Father... Now, this may not sound like it's any different than what Christians have believed for the past two millennia, but there's more to this than meets the eye. 
a lot more. With the apostasy of the church and the loss of the knowledge of the gospel, people began to think that we are just creations of God. Like God created trees and God created animals, that he also created humans. But what Joseph Smith restored was the knowledge that we are literally children of our Father in heaven and not just creations of the Father. And this is uh, in the book Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith on page 345. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. If the veil were rent today and the great God who holds this world in orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power was to make himself visible, I say if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form like yourselves in all the person, image, and very form as a man. It's not just the knowledge that God is our father, but the idea that he is a personage, that he has a physical body, and that he is in fact an exalted man, and he is ultimately what we want to be. So this is, this is the number one thing you're saying that was restored, was the knowledge of God as an exalted man and the relationship that man can become like God. I'd say that's the number one, the idea of who God is and what he is and our, our, our place before him. The, number two would be the fact, the idea that we, we existed before we were born. This is something Joseph Smith taught, is that it's not just that God is eternal, but that we are eternal as well. So Joseph Smith restored the knowledge that we lived before we were born, that our spirits resembled our physical bodies, that we're here to continue our progression towards Godhood, the knowledge that in the preexistence we inherited God-like capacities. Yeah, so, so then the next question is, what are the evidences that that knowledge existed before? And so it was, it was actually a restoration and not just, you know, something that was taught for the first time. I'm trying to think of the one, was it Job, where he says, mm-hmm. before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee? Yeah, yeah, that was Job. That's the classic one. Yeah. And there's also, okay, this is Job 38, verses 3 through 7. Well, I'll, I'll just... Sub- yeah, just summarize it. That, that's the word, summarize. Um, he mentions that, uh, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth, and I declared unto you your understanding? He says... That's not summarizing. <laughs> <laughs> that's reading. I know reading when I hear it. When the morning starts singing together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, that's the great council in heaven where the plan of, of, of the Savior was presented to us. And, and, and Job, he's saying, you were there, you shouted for joy at the knowledge of the plan. The, the other one that I remember from seminary, um, uh-huh. and tell me if, if you've heard this one before, it, it's from the New Testament. Somebody goes to Jesus and says, why was this boy born blind? Is it because of something that he did? Before, or is it something that his parents did? So there was a general knowledge at that time that there was a preexistence. Yeah. Thank you for remembering that one. I'd forgotten about that one. Yeah. All right. How about uh, your third one? The third one is uh, the priesthood. During the apostasy, when all the knowledge of these things was lost, you had the Catholics who, who had a type of priest that they were pretty heavy-handed with. Okay, let me stop Mike again before he gets into too much trouble. Because this is the point where we start calling the Catholic Church the Great and Abominable Church and the Whore of Babylon and a bunch of other not very nice things. Because in order for the Mormon Church to have the pure restored priesthood, you have to have an impure defiled priesthood first. There has to be a bad guy. But do we really ever stop to think about what that actually means for all the millions and millions of Catholics who have lived over the ages? What would they think about this whole apostasy thing being blamed on them? 
Well, I wasn't able to speak to all of those Catholics, but I did call up my old roommate from BYU. She would kiss me and she'd push away because she'd be like, oh, I can't do that with a non-Mormon. This is my old roommate, Doug. He was Catholic when he first came out to Provo. This is the idiot that came all the way from New York. <laughs> is, that what, is that how you feel? Yeah, sometimes. I'll tell you, I mean, looking back, it was, it was so freaking hard. Yeah, what was hard about it? The culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I went from being the vast majority to the vast minority. I mean, not even the vast minority. I mean, I was, I was the freaking dodo bird of, <laughs> you know, at, at BYU. He always said he chose BYU because he liked the football team. Well, it was Ty Detmer's Heisman year. But he also loved the mountains, and his father was a semi-active Mormon, and that played a role in his decision as well. After two years, he met his future wife and joined the church. Now, five kids, and nearly 20 years later, I called him up and asked him to reflect on that time, what it was like being the token Catholic kid at BYU, and how he responded when he first heard about the apostasy. If you remember, I went to Catholic high school, Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to take religion classes there, and we did talk about the Reformation period, where, you know, Martin Luther and um, all the Protestant faiths that that broke off from the the Catholic Church. And so, I mean, from that perspective, yes, I had heard of it. It being the apostasy. In the Book of Mormon perspective, it wasn't until I got to BYU as a freshman and had to take Book of Mormon class. Right. And my first introduction to it was probably within the first week or two of classes. And um, I can't remember who my professor was. I don't think it was anyone popular. Um, and they, we talked about the, the great and spacious building and the, or the great and abominable church. And, and someone in the class, a young lady, said, so that's the Catholic church, right? <laughs> at, that, at that point, um, it was like the, uh, the warning bells and the red flags went up and uh, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I was ready to go to battle. So. so how do you respond to something like that? Well, initially, I mean, the, the response was not good for me because... You know, I was taken aback that someone would name a specific church as, you know, the great and abominable church. And and to me, that, I guess, I mean, those were fighting words back then. Um, And now I perceive it more as, you know, organized religion that prevents man from going back to, you know, getting closer to God kind of thing is how I interpret that now. So it doesn't affect me like it used to. So when, when you were at the Catholic high school and you were learning the history of the Catholic church, um, did it teach like a, a clear succession from Jesus to Paul down to the Pope? How, how, did, how did that work? Um, I don't, it was discussed. I don't remember in, in how much detail, but it's not like I had to memorize the popes from, you know, from Peter on kind of thing. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the transition from one to the other was discussed. To be a priest in the, in the Catholic faith, in the Roman Catholic faith, it's, it's a calling. It's a life's calling and occupation. And so it, it's viewed differently. And, and there was at one point when I was a senior in high school that my religion teacher was a, was a, um, was a priest and had talked to me about becoming one. And for a very short period of time, I, I considered it. The priest job is important because of the fact that what they provide to people are keys that for salvation. You know, they are the only ones that are allowed to baptize children. They are the only ones that are 
you know, allowed right. to give last rites at, at the time of a person's death. Um, so those things are vitally important to a Catholic. Um, in, in a sense, they would be vital to a person's exaltation, I guess. Yeah, and and that that authority that they have is it traced back through Peter to Christ? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't remember if it is or not. I don't think so, because a lot of people, you know, to, to become a priest, you go to college. Uh-huh. Uh, you go to a theolo- uh, theological school, and you receive a degree to be a, a minister, to be a priest. And how is that different from the way that Mormons become uh, priests and get the priesthood? Well, in, in the LDS belief, it is... Our right to act on, on behalf of God can be traced back to the Savior when um, he gave it to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And that can be traced to the point, um, you know, going forward to today. Uh, matter of fact, I remember my dad was LDS, but he wasn't very active for, with the exception of a very small period of time, about four years. Um, he had a heart attack when I was a junior in high school, and it scared him to the point that he got active again for a few years, and he ended up getting, receiving the Melchizedek priesthood. And I remember what, a gift that he got from one of the friends of ours that was in the local ward in the area that I grew up in was kind of a genealogy of the priesthood, mm-hmm. from including my dad's name on it. I always thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I haven't seen one of those in a long, long time. I yeah. don't know if they do that anymore. Now, whether or not specific genealogies are created anymore like that, the idea that man's priesthood can be traced directly back to Jesus Christ is still very much alive and well. In fact, with the narrative template of lost and found as our guide, it's quite easy to trace it back even farther than that, even if we're just making assumptions. Right, Mike? Well, in our scriptures, in the, in the Mormon scriptures, we have the example of uh, Adam being baptized. Okay. There were three angels that came down and instructed Adam in the ordinances necessary to redeem himself from the fall and how to redeem his children from the fall by teaching them these things. And he was introduced to baptism. And so we understand that Adam was baptized and he, of course, would have gone on to baptize Eve and his children. Um, Enoch, uh, he's mentioned so briefly in the scriptures, Enoch was the next dispensation head. He was the big prophet prior to the flood. And he saved his people. We, could, we would suppose he baptized them all. Um, Noah, what's the next one? Uh, Abraham as a dispensation head. Did, was, um, did Abraham baptize? I'm not aware of anything that's mentioned that he baptized. We assume he did. Uh, I know he received the priesthood from Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, which eventually became Jerusalem. So he he went to Melchizedek because Melchizedek was a priesthood head of that time period. What's the next big one? I guess Christ would be the next big one. Yeah, that's a pretty big one. Okay, so you got baptism as an ordinance. What are some of the other ones? Um, the big one in the LDS Church, if we want to go where the Father dwells, not just where Christ dwells, uh, is to be married in the temple. So we go to the temple, we receive our endowments which is uh, knowledge and understanding of uh, how we're supposed to use our priesthood. And after you male and females receive their endowments and their washings and anointings, that's another ordinance, then uh, they can enter into marriage, which is the highest ordinance. And, and wh- where is the, uh, the pre-apostasy parallels there? 
I, I like saying that. Pre-apostasy parallels. <laughs> it's fun. Try it. Pre-apostasy parallels. Yeah, yeah. Ten times fast. Okay. So what, what, what were these uh, early examples of it before the apostasy? Well, we usually associate prophets with, with mountains in the Old Testament times before they established uh, the, the temple. They would go to the mountain. Um, I've heard talks about how Moses divided up Sinai and was trying to take the people up the mountain. And he would, uh, they would, they would do it. As we understand it in the temple, we, we progress from kingdom to kingdom, which is the degrees of glory in heaven. Uh, Moses, as I understand it, divided the mountain this way. And they would progress up the mountain the same way as we progress through the temple, uh, through the kingdoms of heaven. And, uh, well, I've never heard that one before. That's why I like talking to you, Mike. You always surprise me with things like this. When we look at the temple in Jerusalem, it was a massive complex. And so we understand that there was more going on besides the sacrificing of animals is that there were schools where they were instructed in the, in the various knowledge of the gospel. So was it the same types of things that, that uh, LDS people do now? Uh, we would assume that in the church. Sounds like a lot of assuming. But Mike wasn't the only one in a speculative mood. Jake also remembered a few supposed pre-apostasy priesthood parallels, poignantly presented here for your perusing pleasure. James E. Talmadge, you know, explicitly postulates or, or um, throws out the theory that when in the Mount of Transfiguration, that Peter, James, and John received the the temple endowment. The temple endowment, yeah. So that idea, that seed was planted in my brain mm-hmm. um, on a mission when I read, and it was kind of like we just kind of commonly, it was like commonly accepted among the missionaries in my mission anyway. It was like, oh, yeah, well, they received the temple endowments there, you know, but we just... And there was also something, well, people speculating that, like, the original tablets that Moses came down with had, like, the temple ceremony on them and that type of thing. And then he smashed and them. And then he smashed them. So they got the lesser law. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I don't know if... The, did you hear that? Have you ever heard somebody yeah, say that? I was tough. I, I, I heard that growing okay. up. Okay, all right, all right. So I'm not crazy. I think that's interesting because I, I don't know. I haven't heard the... I don't think we discussed in my group of friends because mine was a bunch of girls that hadn't been on missions and hadn't been endowed or anything. So we didn't really talk about the endowment or where it came from, you know, until we got married or something. And even then, I don't, I don't know if any of our conversations went to where it originated. Where we're usually just talking about what we're weirded out by or what we like. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, as Jake said, in, in the New Testament, they have deacons and teachers and priests listed, but they don't say a word about Maya maids and mm-hmm. laurels and beehives. Mm-hmm. It's just not there. <sighs> so we have a common belief that most of the doctrines and principles of the modern church, the Latter-day Saints, are actually restored truths once understood and practiced on the earth by former-day saints but ultimately lost and forgotten. I came across a very interesting variation of this belief cycle early in my mission. I spent two years in Okayama, Japan from 1991 to 93, and when I was in the missionary training center, Sister Keiko Kitagawa, one of our Japanese teachers, told us some stories she had heard when she first joined the church in Totori, Japan. She started by drawing a picture of a Japanese tori gate on the chalkboard. Now, these are the red gates that mark sacred space at the entrance of all Shinto shrines. You may have seen them at some Japanese restaurants. (laughs) She told us that no one in Japan really knows why the Tori gates are painted red, which isn't exactly true. But 
She said that she knew. Because she had found the gospel, she knew that the Torty Gates were read because of the ancient Israelites and the Jewish Passover. You remember the story, right? Moses asks Pharaoh to free his people. Pharaoh refuses time and time again. So ultimately, God sends the angel of death to kill every firstborn. But the ones who slaughter a lamb and mark the sides and the top of their doors in lamb's blood will be spared. Well, Sister Kitagawa was beaming when she told us that this was why the Tori gates were red and that this was just one of many proofs that the Japanese people were remnants of the lost tribes of Israel. Now, this was a fairly common belief among Japanese missionaries during my tenure. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity of sitting down in Japan with one of my former converts to talk with him about what he knew about this. Um, and, and then the other thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about mm-hmm. is the, uh, uh, the lost tribes of Israel yeah. and, and the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So you, you got very interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what are some other, other connections that you've seen? Oh, many, many things. Uh, like uh, Mikoshi. Yeah, you know, Mikoshi. Uh, so the, 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 that Mikoshi is a portable shrine that is like the Ark of the Covenant. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, some people say that uh, came to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? <laughs> no, no. No, you don't know. Why? Uh, it just seems uh, too uh, hard to believe to me. Mm-hmm. But I can see, uh, like, that omikoshi. Mm-hmm. They, uh, it looks uh, like... Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. I can't. I cannot find it any other places. Mm-hmm. Only Judea and only Japan. Right. So, what, what are some other things? Uh, like we eat mochi mm-hmm. uh, at New Year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people say mochi. Uh, yeah, mochi is origin. Uh, the origin. The origin of mochi is mozza. So, do you believe that there is a connection between uh, ancient course, Israel and... Of course, no doubt. No doubt? No doubt. So, so what, what does that mean mm-hmm. to you then? This is uh, completely my own opinion. Okay. <laughs> Maybe Japan might have a special mission mm-hmm. uh, for the God's work, uh, for the work of God. And it wasn't just the Japanese Mormons who felt a special connection to God through this particular story of Lost and Found. The missionaries also felt that they were restoring lost knowledge to a special group of people. In fact, my own mission president, Seichiro Utagawa, spent an entire zone conference once trying to convey this message to us. He said that if a Japanese person understands that they are a hidden remnant of the lost tribes of Israel, then their conversion to Mormonism is not really a betrayal of their family or of their faith or their entire Japanese heritage. It's a reclamation of it. It's just one more example of the restoration of all things. So you can see the important role that apostasy plays in creating a sense of togetherness and unity. But there's something very ironic about that word, apostasy. 
especially when compared to those who were known as special witnesses of Jesus Christ here in the latter days. What does the word apostasy mean? Do you guys know? Apostas after. <laughs> so, I don't know, after something breaks apart. I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a good way. I always thought of it as like a, a falling away right. or something like that. But that's just kind of a... Uh, colloquial definition. I mean, it's just kind of a lay definition. I don't know if it's just like a, an official like base Latin thing. <laughs> Have you ever thought about the similarity between apostate and apostle? No. No. I would just. I knew where you were going with that, though. As soon as I started talking about apostasy. No, I didn't see that coming. Well, they both mean the same thing. Like sent away or fallen away, because when Christ took his disciples. He sent them out into the world. Hmm. He sent them away. And so that's why they were called apostles. But then, you know, people who fall away from the truth are called apostates. But so. That's interesting. Well, so they are the same. I mean, it's the same kind of it root. It comes from the same root, yeah. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And depending on who you ask, there may be more similarities between apostate and apostle than immediately meets the eye. It is a possibility. This is Rock Waterman, who runs the blog puremormonism.blogspot.com. In June 2012, Rock wrote an entry entitled, Who You Call an Apostate?, where he promoted his suspicion that the apostasy is happening all over again, this time to the once-restored LDS Church, from lost to found to lost again. I think that there's a lot of confusion between the meanings of the church and the gospel. The gospel truths, I don't believe, will ever be taken away from the earth again. But this particular institution can stumble and falter and is in need of repentance, uh, institutional repentance, full membership repentance. We all need to check ourselves and check the arrogance of believing that we can never be wrong. I sat down with both Rock and another blogger, Michael Ellis, who wrote, Lessons from the Great Apostasy at zomara.wordpress.com. Michael also believes that the cycle of apostasy is happening once again. Because I tried to write my post as a narrative going through what appeared to be the great apostasy, but then actually at the end of the post you realize I'm talking about the modern LDS church. An attempt to draw a parallel between what Mormons view as the great apostasy and events in the modern LDS church that could be viewed in that same light. But I thought the apostasy was over and that God wasn't going to let anything like that happen again. I, th- I think Mike has, has pointed out that God is ultimately in charge, but that's ultimately in the meantime, we're allowed to muck things up as much as we want. But keep in mind that even... Under the Catholic Church for hundreds of years, there was a, a basic core belief in Christ, even though who he was and, and what he was like was, uh, you know, diluted over time. So, I mean, everything, everything wasn't lost, and everything isn't lost today. So today's apostasy isn't like the apostasy in, like after Christ? Yeah, I don't think the apostasy that we're seeing today is catastrophic. But it's it's uh, noticeable. I also think it's just shades of gray. You know, it comes down to us as individuals, whether we are in apostasy or not, based on our actions. So what about the priesthood? I mean, with the great apostasy, that was the big thing that was lost, right? So is the church in danger of losing the priesthood today? 
I think the theory authority still exists. It's passed down from father to son and from one priesthood holder to the other. But I also think that too often priesthood authority is mistaken as uh, priesthood leadership, as the, the authority is somehow sitting in this magisterium in Salt Lake City where they have all power and, and that, that we have to look to them and take our orders from them. And I don't think that's true. I think we, all of those who are members of the church and holders of the priesthood, have the same priesthood authority. Uh, the, the office of elder is the highest uh, authority in the church. A high priest is no higher than an elder. Well, and I think a lot of uh, Mormons will look to the doctrine of keys and say, well, the president of the church is the only one that holds the keys. Uh, in some of my research, I found some quotes from Joseph Smith that said, basically that the goal was for every person to hold all the keys. I think, I think it's the things that we're being taught from the leadership. Uh, they're, they're just a little bit askew. Uh, I'll give you an example. Russell Bellard gave a, a multi-regional uh, talk a while back where he, he spoke about his wife, he and his wife being on a, on a cruise ship, and uh, he used the analogy that you know, everything is safe as long as you stay on the ship. But, and of course, he, he, uh, he drew the analogy that the, the ship is like the church. Don't get off the ship, stay where the safety is, and all will be well. Um, a spectator over on, at his blog, Justin True, says, uh, instead of telling us don't get off the ship, the message should be, here are the things you need to know so that you can be prepared to leave the ship and finish your journey under your own power. Because uh, that's an interesting analogy that the church is like a ship and that we should stay on it and, and, and never leave. But the, the problem I see with that analogy is that it's Luciferian. I have a plan. It will save every man. I will force them to live righteously They won't have to choose Not when we will lose Isn't that exactly what the Son of the Morning uh, uh, promulgated? That, that, you know, I'll get you there, just stay with me, follow us, you'll be safe. Any problems and pain will not be no wars and no strife A wonderful life And that's what the church is teaching these days is, is follow the leaders That's where safety lies Follow, follow me This is the way it should be Follow, follow, follow me It's Luciferian and that's, that hasn't been a doctrine of this church. It has always been follow Christ. It's true that if you follow me, there will be dangers, difficulties, perhaps even wars and bloodshed, for you will be free to choose them if you wish. That's where, that's where your salvation lies. So it's, it's, it's teachings like this, and, and, and I see a bending in the doctrine of free agency now where... Uh, uh, it's being, it's assumed that free agency really doesn't mean the, cho the choice to make mistakes. It means the choice to choose the right. And, and the, we, we're only, we really only have agency to do right. We don't have agency to make mistakes. And the idea of the church, as, as uh, Elder Pullman taught originally, was that the idea is 
we're supposed to get to the point where we no longer need the church and its programs. So you're referencing Elder Pullman there, and uh, you know, for those who don't know, 1984, he gave a conference talk uh, where he was talking about free agency and that the gospel is more important than the church, really. And then there were some uh, decisions that were made where he was uh, forced to rewrite that talk and, and re-perform it, actually, in front of an empty tabernacle. When we understand the difference between the gospel and the church and the appropriate function of each in our daily lives, we are much more likely to do the right things for the right reasons. Institutional discipline is replaced by self-discipline. Supervision is replaced by righteous initiative and a sense of divine accountability. And here's what he had to change it to, removing the bit about differences between the gospel and the church and changing that to harmony between the gospel and the church and uh, placing the emphasis on church guidance uh, as opposed to uh, freedom from church guidance. So here's the redo. When we see the harmony between the gospel and the church in our daily lives, we are much more likely to do the right things for the right reasons. We will exercise self-discipline and righteous initiative, guided by church leaders and by a sense of divine accountability. So you're referencing this rock, and you're saying that his original talk had some elements of truth to it, but wouldn't the fact that the church made him change that be an indication that perhaps he was wrong in the first place? No, what that tells me is that the church (laughs) is an apostasy. Yeah, I think one of the biggest threats today is the corporatism of the church. The church has simply become a trademark of the corporation of the president, and that needs to all be dismantled, and the church needs to become the people again. The the collective group of believers is the church. Exactly. Well, look at how we we, we have now... We have now... uh, Cut the church into two classes. There's there's the members and the leaders, and that's not what the, the way the Lord defines the church in DNC ten sixty eight. He defines it as all those who come to me, who repent and come to me, the same as my church. Which, which, which leaders are you thinking of? Are you thinking of uh, like on a local level, like bishops and uh, I, presidents, I, or what? Uh, I'm, when I talk about the institutional church, I'm talking primarily about Salt Lake City, but it, it, it trickles down all the way to bishops. We look, we are taught that the bishop is somehow like the great principle that, uh, you know, it, when I was uh, in, in the ironic priesthood, you know, somebody uh, somebody came in and said the bishop wants to see in his office. And, of course, all the guys go, ooh, what did you do? So there's that automatic assumption that he's an authority figure over us rather than a servant to us. And this is this is what we need to get away from. Like Mike says, we need to get away from this thinking that uh, – this corporate thinking that the, the church is in charge – uh, 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 we need to stop thinking about what does the church think about this? What is the church's position on this? Because we are supposed to be the church. The church is supposed to be egalitarian. And yet here we are talking about the church as if it's a separate entity from us. So, Rock, if the church is everyone, what do you do when there's differences of opinion, differences of interpretation of doctrine? I mean, how how do you get a direction uh, like a single direction when everyone's kind of floating around in charge. 
there's doctrines are, the doctrines are in the word of god it's in the scriptures so we know we know what christ teaches joseph smith was quoted as saying that revelation will never contradict a previous revelation something like that um that's kind of what i use as a as a basic guide uh if i come across something that is contradictory for example the administration of the sacrament uh section 20 lists the duties of a priest and then the duties of a priest when an elder is present and when an elder is present the duty of administering the sacrament isn't there so the scriptures tell us that when a elder is present a priest is not supposed to administer the sacrament yet in the church we have priests administering the sacrament all the time there are dozens of elders in the congregation priests are still administering the sacrament so for me I look at that and say, well, the modern policy is in contradiction with the scriptures, so I have to go with the scriptures. So what, so what do you do in that case when, when you say, oh, it shouldn't be a priest, it should be the elders? How do you, how do you deal with that or how do you correct it? I, I, think, I, pointing it, I think pointing it out is about all you can do. Isn't that right, Mike? Yeah, I, there's nothing you can really do as far as the institutional church is concerned. One of the things you can do is, uh, you know, have your own sacrament meeting in your home mm-hmm. uh, and, and just do it according to how the scriptures, it, if you're an elder or a priest, you have that authority to, to administer those ordinances. We do that, my in wife and home. I, and, and it, it consists of eating the bread until we're full and drinking. Well, we're, we're currently drinking red grape juice. We drink wine if we could stand the stuff, but uh, we do it the way Christ taught in the book of Mormon. They, they, Eight until they were full. Now I realize that that's that may not be convenient in a ward with three or four hundred members. So they give everybody a little snack-sized bite of bread, but that's not the way it was taught. So, so, so if I understand what what you're both saying, then uh, you're saying that on some level you you reject what is being done erroneously in the institutional church, and you return to you know, privately in, in your own home, doing it the way that you feel is the right way to do it. And no, you, you, you've actually done that, Rock. Have, have you done that, Michael? I haven't. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. won't go into more detail than that. Okay. Yeah, it's it's worth pointing out. Right. It's worth pointing out that I don't think either Mike or I feel that uh, that it's our place to correct the church or start our own church or, 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 or do things the right way. I think the only thing you can do is, uh, I, I think maybe Samuel the Lamanite, and once again, it's been a long time since I've read what he wrote, but basically he was pointing out, look, you're a little bit out of the way, but he wasn't trying to come in and, and start his own church or, or tell people, tell the church how they should be doing it. He was telling people, look, you're, you're, you've gone off the path. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you, you know, say you're reading through the Doctrine and Covenants, and you come across section uh, 132, and you're reading this, and Joseph Smith is saying, oh, you know, I see that Moses and Abraham and, you know, these guys had multiple wives. Lord, what about me? And Lord says, yeah, do it. I'll call it the New and Everlasting Covenant Marriage. Okay, so we're talking about polygamy here. It's in the Scriptures. It's part of the DNC. How do you guys reconcile that with, with, you know, the scriptures being your guide? Now, I'm aware that there are people who have prayed about polygamy and they believe that it is a true, correct doctrine for them. 
for me, it's been borne upon my spirit that it is not the true doctrine for me. I'm not going to tell other people how they should run their lives or whether they should have polyandrous marriages because uh, I know many people who are quite happy. And I'm not sure God cares about living arrangements in certain homes. But the answer I got was no. And I, I take that as, as not that that is now something I should proclaim as the absolute truth everyone should live by. I just take that as the truth that I should live by. Okay, so you guys are going by a lot of personal revelation, you know, personal feelings, okay? So uh, let, let me ask you about those feelings and go back to this idea of apostasy in the first place. You know, what was it that got you guys thinking that the modern church was in apostasy? Well, first off, let me state I've been a political conservative activist for years. I was a delegate to the Utah um, you know, I was a Utah delegate, so I, I, I have my bona fides as conservative. But then when George Bush took office and I saw the infiltration of the neoconservative movement displacing what I understood conservatism to be, I found that alarming. But I, what I found most alarming was that a great majority of Latter-day Saints went with it, assuming that this was a part of their religion, and the, the, the warmongering and militarism and aggression uh, – in foreign nations was perfectly fine and perfectly blessed by God, even though it went completely antithetical to our scriptures. Uh, the DMC 98.33, the entire Book of Mormon, all the teachings of the Book of Mormon on war can be distilled into two points. Number one, if a foreign invader invades your land and occupies you, you have the duty the right and the duty to drive him out. But the second part of that is you can't cross that border and chase him in his own land. And the reason for that is the moment you do that, you are likely to kill people who had nothing to do with coming against you. So you have the right to kill or drive out those who came against you, but you don't have the right to kill those who did not come against you. And that's what happens when you cross the borders into other lands We've been killing hundreds of thousands of innocents, and this, to me, is a huge, huge thing, and it doesn't seem to bother a lot of the members of the church because they feel that it somehow has to do with uh, fighting for their freedoms, which I, I've never been able to get anybody to walk me through that, how, how uh, dragging a man and his family out of their home in the middle of the night in a foreign land 25,000 miles away defends my freedom. I don't see that. So, so this is why it was a, a big awakening to me, because if there's anything that's huge, it's the murder of innocence. And to be dismissive of that, as so many Latter-day Saints have, is to me a sign of a real lack of spiritual insight. To me, I, I was seeing, a, in my eyes, I was seeing a mass apostasy of the church following the precepts of men, and not to mention, of course, that the wars were not constitutional, and that's also a big part of our religion, that everything we, we do should be constitutional. So that was a big turning point for me. I, I was saying, wow, where's everybody going? Yeah, how about you, Michael? Well, for me, it started about the time my daughter was born, back in 2009. I, I just saw these differences between the culture of the church and what the scriptures were teaching. That The thing was that kind of started it for me was sacrament. People were, it, it's just a common tradition to give your sacrament to your kids that are under eight years old and haven't been baptized yet. And people would say it's to help them practice partaking of the sacrament or things like that. And my daughter 
isn't eight years old yet. She's not baptized. She shouldn't be partaking of the sacrament according to the scriptures. Well, according to my reading of the scriptures anyway. And so that was the first thing that kind of started me off is that I didn't want my daughter to partake of the sacrament until she was baptized. All right. Uh, what do you guys think about uh, spiritual gifts? You know, the way that the, the state of the church right now with um, spiritualism, spiritual gifts, as compared to how it was, uh, say, in, in Kirtland, Ohio, in Joseph Smith's day. It's it's a sign that we are an apostasy because we have such a, such a dearth of spiritual gifts in our church. What surprised me was learning that at the time of Joseph Smith, hardly anyone had ever heard of Joseph Smith's first vision. They came flocking to the church by the thousands because the gifts of the Spirit were so evident. And what did we do as missionaries? What we did was we taught the first vision. And, and the lesson of the first vision is, and so Mr. Brown, from, this, from that day to now, we have a prophet on the earth today. What the first vision really taught was that if you have an answer, you can get direct answers direct from God if you have sufficient faith. And of course, I'm sure you're aware that there are members of the church today who do have visions and have seen angels and seen Christ or claim to. Uh, I don't question anyone's personal testimony. I do. (laughs) But I question everything. Well, I, I, I don't feel I have the right to step in and say, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, so you don't mean question, you mean deny. Right, okay. Uh-huh. Now, if they were to come to me and say, an angel appeared to me and told me that you're supposed to do such and such, of course, that's, that's outside their realm. But if an angel appears to them and says, hey, uh, plant tomatoes, go ahead, plant tomatoes. Well, that's really the role of a prophet is they aren't to be this grand leader that dictates what everyone else is supposed to do. All they are is receiving a message from God and then relaying that to the exactly. people, and then those who accept it, accept it. But how exactly. is that different than what you just said, Mike, that, that the prophet tells people what God wants them to do? I think what he wants them to know. Yeah, but it's always, it's not just knowing, it's the doing. Well, uh, I mean, there's a difference between the a, the Samuel, the Lamanite, that stands on the wall and warns people, and the uh, president of the corporation that dictates church policy and forces that change upon everyone below him. Yeah, we'll look at the City Creek Mall, not to open a big can of worms here. For those who may not know, the City Creek Mall is a lavish shopping center directly across the street from Temple Square in downtown Salt Lake. It features high-end retailers like Tiffany's, Nordstrom, Rolex, and Porsche Design. The church spent an estimated $1.5 billion on the mall as part of a larger $5 billion project to revitalize the downtown area. The church has said that no tithing money was used towards the mall, but critics have claimed that whether the church used tithing money directly or not, all financial holdings of the church could be traced back to the generous donations of church members, and those finances ought to go towards more humanitarian efforts than the commercial building of a mall. Back to Rock. Have you seen the the video of Monson at the ribbon cutting? One, two, three, let's go shopping. One, two, three, let's go shopping. <laughs> I just don't see a Benedi in that role. But but that's that's been the last straw for a lot of members. You know, I had this conversation with uh, Jake and Erica, and I mentioned to them what Rock had said about the City Creek Mall, and I thought that Erica had a really interesting comment on that. That's so interesting. See what I mean? Because that's 
I mean, City building Creek Mall. City Creek Mall is sounds exactly like something Joseph Smith would do in Nauvoo. Like, you know, the equivalent in the night in the 1840s, you know, starting a bank and building all these buildings with church funds and starting this government and this whole town that's based around the church. I mean, I mean, Joseph Smith was totally involved in the money aspect and the agricultural aspect and the building aspect and they sent missionaries to go get wood for the temple. You know, like I mean so he really didn't differentiate between the spiritual and the temporal. No, areas, no, he th- it was the same to him. So I mean, and I don't know if that shows that our church is doing the same thing that God would want Joseph Smith to do, and therefore it's the same, or that that's an aspect that Joseph Smith took into his whole ha- own hands that maybe shouldn't have. I don't know, mm-hmm. but City Creek. I mean, I don't. I I'm still undecided of whether I think it's a good or bad thing but as far as whether the church it's what the church would do of course like it's always involved in financial things so what do you guys think about this idea that the modern church has fallen away into apostasy that there's a lack of new revelation a lack of spiritual gifts in the church and what do you think about all this I don't know if I would say that's falling away but I mean there's times there's times in Joseph Smith's life where he was more uh, more prolific, you know, in his revelations than others. So, I don't know. But the, those tend to be at the end of his life, so maybe he was losing his touch. I don't know. Yeah, I thought he was kind of sped up towards the end. No. King Follett. I mean, I mean, King Follett was, was huge, and he had lots of Polygamy, big things that happened. You the know, temple endowment. ceremony. Right, but Council his direct revelations are like in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's like they should slow down a lot. So one last question or series of questions, and this one is directed back towards our good friend Mike. So if we're looking at the great apostasy again, I just want to know what caused it. As we understand it, it... it you begin to blend in the philosophies of man with the the gospel. You try to make it understandable. Say, say you don't have a full knowledge, so you blend in with it, your philosophies and your understandings of how the world works. And over time, these things mingled and dilute the fullness of the gospel. There was also, if you look at Simon Magus, who is mentioned in the New Testament a couple of times, he played a big part in that he saw Christianity as something to make money with. How would you respond if somebody told you that that same process of apostasy was happening today with the, the modern church? Uh, I'd say you just have to have faith in the prophets and apostles. We know that these are good men and that they're not going to let something like that happen to Christ's church. I know it, it seems like to some people like uh, maybe we get some thin teachings of the gospel at general conference, but uh, the, the, the apostle's main job is to teach repentance and the necessity of baptism. Yeah. Cause one of the things that you said when I asked, you know, how did the apostasy happen? It, it was kind of diluting the gospel and blending in, you know, with the philosophies of men, making it more palatable for the, the world around. Right. Oh yeah. We, we sometimes get that impression nowadays because it seems like they're trying to tailor the gospel to Christians. Uh-huh. Um, and, and try to make it more appealing to the uh, evangelicals. By de-emphasizing the thing that you put as number one. 
the knowledge of who the, the father knowledge is. of who the father is and the uh the purpose of existence becoming like god you know where you've got well, i think when they when they hand people the doctrine and covenants it, it all these things are in there and they're they're very i mean just just with the the account of the first vision which is something the missionaries are quick to teach it's the father and son appearing to joseph smith side by side uh, that's one of the first things that the missionaries will teach people. So it is no, there. But that's a very different thing than than man having the ability to become like God. And, okay. the, and it, that, yeah, that's in the Doctrine and Covenants. You kind of kind of look that, that one up. God up. is an exalted man, you know, because that that was your number one. And when yes. when President Hinckley was asked that on national TV, you remember what his answer was? And he says, "I don't know that we." teach that or emphasize it and then he went on at the general conference afterwards and kind of gave a wink wink nun dungeon and you know yeah, what, I mean? <laughs> what, what do you think that was about uh i think it, if you were to say that at a news conference it'd be make people kind of take people aback a little bit where like like i said their, their mission is to get people baptized and receive the gift of the holy ghost so they don't emphasize the deeper doctrines so, of the i gospel. thought it was to proclaim the truth and not not it like, is because you is. know what was it that Peter did? You know, Peter was really evasive and denied Christ three times, you know. Was he trying to do that to baptize the Roman soldiers? <laughs> Good point. You know, as I look at these different conversations, what interests me the most is not the particular beliefs that each person expresses, like whether or not today's Mormon church is identical to the early Christian church, or if the Catholic church really was great and abominable, or if the Japanese really are the lost tribes of Israel, or even if the modern LDS church has strayed from its early origins. What interests me the most is the way that this apostasy narrative of lost and found permeates the discussion and provides some sense of meaning and purpose in these people's lives. And you know what else I found interesting? Lost and found is more than just a religious narrative. I sat down with fellow infants, <laughs> Randy and Matt, and asked them, is there a similar apostasy restoration narrative for atheists? What happened in history is that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, came, uh, made a lot of advances in thinking and, and scientific, um, uh, you know, observing the universe. And, and uh, you know, I think the Greeks even got, you know, hypothesized the atom. Well, then, um, you know, uh, things kind of went backwards. Um, I don't want to sound too critical, and I don't know if it would have played out differently if it hadn't been for Christianity, but Christianity kind of took over, and it it uh, commandeered all not teaching and, and, and what was true, and it, and it held that power for centuries. And well, why, what happened with the Renaissance? In the Ottoman Empire, a lot of the lost Greek writings of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato were discovered and brought to Florence, Italy, and that's you know, that kind of reawakened a lot of thinkers in a, a world gripped by Christian control, Catholic control. Um, so there was a, kind of an apostasy of advancement of, of uh, thinking um, and philosophy that was lost until it was brought from the Ottoman Empire to, uh, to, to Italy. So, so, so the atheistic position is the, the one true restoration. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> the one true restoration yeah yeah you're, you're restoring rational thinking to the world yeah 
you know, you know, the other place where this is kind of God applied, bless the Renaissance. <laughs> where where this is applied from a secular perspective is is in politics. Doesn't everybody feel that there was a going away from the founding fathers and what the founding fathers intended, and we're all bringing it back? You have the Tea Party people who are saying this is true Americana. This is truly what the founding fathers and the constitution meant. And, and the, the liberals say the same thing. No, this is really what they meant. Uh, and, and you have this fight over saying, trying to find uh, what the founding fathers or what the, the beginning of this nation is ultimately about at its core. And everybody feels that everybody else is in some sort of apostasy as it relates to just our American society. Yeah, so it's it's really just kind of a powerful human. What would you call it? Would you call it a, a worldview or almost an appeal to authority? At some level, isn't that what it is? Aren't we saying um, we're we're calling something as as being greater than or having authority, whether it be God, whether it be the Bible, whether it be the Constitution, whether it be these philosophers, and then coming back and saying now. I somehow or my group somehow understands that authority better than my peers for some reason. But, but it, it's really anti-progress though, isn't it? Because it, it, in, in order for that worldview to work, you have to believe that uh, things have devolved. You know, that there was this golden age, whether it was a golden age of science or a golden age of religion that then degraded. And now you're re- restoring that golden age. Well, there was, uh, you know, the greatest uh, library in the world uh, during this time. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was Hypatia of Alexandria. Um, and she was the curator, I believe, of the of that great library in Alexandria. And uh, she was eventually, um, she, she was very popular and the Catholic, I think it was the bishop in the area or maybe it was a cardinal, uh, was threatened by her, and and in the Library of Alexandria, you know, were a lot of those great Greek writings and and a lot of uh, great literature and 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 an advancement of human thinking and and the brass plates. <laughs> yes, yes, Mike. Yes, and the brass plates. And uh, if only we had those brass plates with that genealogy. Right. Um, and then he was uh, this this Catholic official had her uh, from what I remember reading about. Um, assassinated in the most horrific ways. They seized her and they sliced her to pieces with shells, like seashells. Um, and then I'm sure they had a lot of the stuff burned and destroyed in the, in the Library of Alexandria. And, and a lot of uh, secularists believe that it, that moment was the beginning of the Dark Ages. So, you know, yeah, the, something was lost. There was a knowledge, kind of like, you know, with the Mormons, they believe uh, that Christ restored the true pure church in that first century and uh, and then it was corrupted and crushed by the weight of the evil of the world where you know atheists say it, uh, it's crushed uh, enlightenment was crushed by the catholic church <laughs> so what i was thinking about as uh, i was thinking about this losing and finding especially as it relates to changing your your world views you maybe change from being a believer to being a non-believer or being from one religion to another religion or even going from a more mainstream uh, believer to a more fundamentalist is you're losing the way that you maybe once viewed truth or viewed view the way to interpret the world and finding a new way to interpret, interpret truth and, and interpret the world. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I still think, I still think that the, 
that template of lost and found, like the apostasy lost and found is still, it hinges on restoration. And so I think like losing one thing and gaining something else is different than regaining something that came before, like in this. That was lost. And it it is the idea of, of restoration. Yeah. And you know, kind of what I've, have been going for with this is the way that that history gets reinterpreted to fit a narrative. So right. you've got this narrative structure that once upon a time there was purity, that purity was defiled. Somebody's got to bring that purity back and it's going to be me. And so like when I say that the the story of lost and found is deeply embedded in Mormon psyche. That's kind of what I mean is, is there's this, there's this, uh, penchant for looking at the world in a certain way and, and trying to discover or rediscover things that were lost, you know? So like Mike did it beautifully when he was going through the Adam being baptized and, you know, all those dispensation heads that, well, we don't know, but we can assume. Well, what what's the basis for assuming? Well, we've got this narrative that says that these things came before. Well, and it's funny because I remember an institute teacher, and actually the head of institute here at, at, at ASU, had this idea of chiasmus, yeah. right? Said that the entire world is a chiasmus, and, and the gospel is a chiasmus to the extent that if there was ever... Um, blood sacrifice, for example, or, 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 yeah, well, animal sacrifice, that that will have to be restored before Christ can come. And so he kind of, his, he really emphasized this idea of everything that came before must come again and be restored, even animal sacrifice. So it definitely is a, a very Mormon, Mormon concept. Yeah, but when you look closely at it, you can see that he's just pulling that out of his chiasmus. <laughs> he is. So anyone for the closing prayer? That's the end of Hi, this is Brian from Novi, Michigan, and I am yet another returned missionary from Japan who has left the church. Konnichiwa, Guren-senpai! You can comment on this episode on the website, infiniteonthrones.com, and if you really like what you hear, give the form a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infinite on Thrones.